Welcome to the New Zealand Tech Podcast, presented by Paul Spain, Bradley Burrows and guests. Welcome to the New Zealand Tech Podcast. This is episode number 57. This is a special edition covering some highlights from the Webstock Conference held in Wellington. Uh, this episode, we talk with Rafi Kokorian from Twitter. Uh, we also have a chat with Scott Hanselman from Microsoft, uh, Derek Handley, the founder of uh, New Zealand's Hyperfactory, uh, that has um, picked up um, some some very good uh, recognition for their work around the world, uh, and has now been um, uh, has moved into in- international uh, ownership after uh, uh, Derek and the New Zealand shareholders um, have uh, have sold up, and uh, we also talked to the team from Go Vocab, uh, a Wellington-based software startup uh, that uh, during the Webstock conference were the winner of the BNZ Startup Alley competition. Uh, so yeah, we've got, we've got some interesting bits and pieces to chat through. So uh, first up, let's dive in uh, for our discussion with Rafi. Uh, we had that on um, on Wednesday, just uh, a day before the main, uh, the main part of the Webstock conference started. Right, right now um, I'm here with Rafi Kikorian from Twitter. Uh, welcome to New Zealand. How are you enjoying it here? It's gorgeous over here. I also really enjoying the fact that it's, well, except for the Wellington weather, mostly summertime. Excellent. So where else have you been? Uh, I went up to, I started in Auckland and then went up to Kiwifu, which is in Waxworth, I guess. Um, and then I'm off to Queenstown after this. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, yeah I'm really looking good. forward to it. So have you got, how long have you got in New Zealand? Unfortunately, not as long as I would like. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Oh, well, I, ho- I hope you enjoy the rest of the rest of your time here. So can you tell us a little bit about what what your role is at, at Twitter, how long you've been involved with the, sure. the organization, the engineering side? Sure. I've, so I've been at Twitter for almost three years now. We're coming up some point around that. Um, I was hired originally just to be an engineer on the API team then, building out the, the ecosystem and working with developers and figuring out what they needed and building products specifically for them. And more recently, I'm now the director of application services. So it's it's uh, a big chunk of the core infrastructure of Twitter. So everything you think about is like the scalable incoming requests or the outgoing portion of Twitter mm-hmm. is managed by my group. So we handle all the public and private APIs. We handle the things like the core tweet service, the core timeline service, the core user service, all of those type of things. So the, the main interfaces, the nouns and the verbs of Twitter run through my group. Well, that's a rather important role that you're I sit back my feet up all the time. <laughs> so what are, what are the challenges associated with keeping, keeping Twitter running and I'm dealing with the sort of the peaks and the, and the troughs that we see? You know, for instance, you know, the, the, this last weekend, um, you know, Whitney Houston passed away. Um, you get events like that where suddenly there's a flurry of ac- activity. And, you know, some of them you can predict, you know, when you know there sure. are certain events that are happening. There's only, like, four events a year that we, we we know. Like, there are four events a year that we know and we predict and we plan for. The rest of it is sort of what happens in the world kind of happens on Twitter. Mm. And we just sort of need to roll with those type of punches. So a lot of what we do is just make sure that we understand what capacity looks like. We understand what the limits of the system look like. We just sort of know what we're going to do to respond to these mm. type of events. Like working at Twitter, like it's that combination of like we're trying to build some of the biggest infrastructure for one of the largest real-time systems on the planet right now, but also just how do you manage and run mm. real-time systems? It's not just a software problem. There's a there's a response time problem. There's a what we do when things go down. Like things inevitably things will break. So like people will measure us not on uh, whether or not it goes down, but how fast we can pick ourselves back up again. Mm, mm. So those are the kind of problems that we sort of generally are thinking about. And you mentioned there were there were, there are four events that you can plan for during the year. What are the, what are those four? Uh, I mean, there are probably more than four. Okay, four okay. is sort of just a number we like to think about. But like two of them are, are clear off the bat. Right, mm. one of them is New Year's. New Year's mm. is one of the biggest traffic times. For Twitter, it's the time of the year that on the hour, every hour, we're going to see a spike as people are sort of wishing Happy New Year to the rest of the world. Um, and then for, for U.S. tweeters, which are a big portion of the population, Super Bowl is one of the things that we always have to plan for. And 
then there are all like we have calendars of all the other events. Like mm-hmm. I know when the Tour de France is starting. We know when the Emmys and the Oscars are going on. We know when the Olympics are starting this year. So those things get factored into all the and how we sort of run and manage and think about the service. Mm-hmm. But there are usually like just four, maybe five events a year, which are like the big ones that we just have to make sure that we're always ready for. And those are ones that we look towards as are we going to be able to withstand those big events. And have you done with the last the last few of those? Super Bowl was flawless. Like, like there was absolutely no issues with the site. Uh, we had a few issues around New Year's this, this past year. Uh, Twitter got very popular all of a sudden without us watching it. Um, so, but besides that, I think we're doing we're doing remarkably better. Right? Mm-hmm. Two thousand eight, two thousand nine was the time of the farewell. And mm-hmm. These days, it's, you see it much less frequently, if at all. Yeah, in fact, at, at CES there was a, an Australian designer there who um, who. Well, one of her claims to fame was that she had designed the uh, the Twitter fail. Sure. <laughs> um, now, in terms of, I mean, how do you do that? How do you how do you actually keep it running? What are the what are the sort of the behind the scenes tricks that uh, I mean, you know, that, that, that you have to do to do that? Is it is there is, is there a big difference according to the um, the hardware you use, the software, the tools that you use to sort of monitor the activity? Where sure. are the what are the sort of the key elements? I guess. In that picture. Yeah, I mean, for us, there's not, there's nothing really particularly special about the hardware we're using. We use mostly commodity hardware to sort of get the job done. We we boost up like our, our database machines might be a little more a little more disk heavy. Some machines might be a little more network heavy. But in general, there's nothing. There's no custom hardware necessarily being deployed. But a lot of what we're doing is just really good engineering work. Mm-hmm. Like we just make sure that we measure and understand every part of the system before it goes into production. We've carefully stress tested everything before custom production. Just really mindfully know what the limits of the system are going to be before we turn that thing up. And if we turn out to be wrong, then like really quickly scramble to figure out why we're wrong and just get again, get back up on our feet again. Like do a root cause analysis. Like just understand exactly what broke and how do we fix the root of the problem, not just band-aid over it for the next time because then it'll break again. Um, so like I said, it's mostly just really good engineering work and that's what we're sort of priding ourselves on. The Twitter problem don't get me wrong is a hard problem like we're we're planning for like what we call steady state where tweets are just coming in on a daily basis and then we have these massive spikes whether it be like um, the Japanese had this castle in the sky event which is our current record I think of something like 24 or 25,000 tweets a second came into the system Um, so we have these massive spikes that we just need to know what the system would do so again it's not necessarily that the system will be completely available although that's always our goal but just again being exactly mindful of like, okay, if we're going to pass this limit, these are the things that are going to break, and how can we either react to it appropriately, or when we have time or resources, make sure we're focusing on those parts of the problem. Okay, and now Twitter is, is growing at a, at a rapid rate. What's what's the user sort of base up to, or what are the numbers that you can you can talk about in, in that now? I think these days we're saying like it's over 100 million active users mm-hmm. are coming to the site. And, you know, I guess with iOS 5, we saw, uh, you know, Twitter integration sure. on, on the iPhone. Um, has, has that been quite dramatic in terms of the impact that that has had on your audience? Yeah, most certainly. My group actually is a group that worked on the on the Twitter side on the iOS integration. And I think the day we turned it on, we saw a, a spike of signups coming from iOS. Like there was a certain level and we just sort of like changed the slope on that. And then the iOS 5 was released before iPhone 4S was released. And as more and more Apple, as more and more people bought Apple products, more and more people would then be signing up for Twitter because it was just part of the system. So sort of being being part of that core integration of one of the most popular phones and products on the planet is definitely changing our numbers. It's definitely yeah. helping out. In so it's an extremely effective partnership. 100%. And, and we've made it so easy for developers to develop applications that use the Twitter API either to tweet or to manage your social graph or to do all these other things. So we're just seeing increased activity overall coming from iOS. Interesting. Now, um, lo- looking forward, where 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 do you think all this is? Where do you think all this is going to go? Where's Where's Twitter going to sort of fit in the um, in in the world in sure. the next sort of three, four, five years? Have you got some thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, uh, so Twitter. What we're really good at right now is delivering real time information. Right, like look at Whitney Houston's death. Um, it broke on Twitter, and it was fully known by the Twitter community like tens of minutes. I think on the order of thirty to 
40 minutes before any major national news agency in the world published a story on it. Um, so what Twitter is really good at surfacing these things, and, and it doesn't have to be only on that big global scale. It could be these smaller niche niche events that are coming up. Uh, and, and, and by niche, I don't necessarily mean to be um, pejorative, but sort of more, more locally targeted versus sort of these big global events. Um, so what Twitter is, what Twitter needs to do probably and what we're working on is helping deliver the better discoverability around those events targeted to you. So like you as a Twitter user should be able to be smarter by having Twitter in your pocket, right? Like you should have events, you should have notifications and you should have information in your timeline that just serve are really pertinent to you whether or not they've come from people you follow, like retweets are one way that breaks the follower graph. But it just, as you pull open Twitter, you have either a spare moment or an SMS notification goes by, you should become smarter. You should learn more about the world around you. And that's, I think, the direction we're really going to be pushing the service. And, you know, there's, there's a whole industry, I guess, of, of, you know, businesses and consultants and individuals now in the social media space. Sure. Uh, what are the big opportunities you're seeing for businesses to gain a benefit out of, um, you know, participating within, within um, you know, the Twitter ecosystem? So there's two halves to that. One is there's actually... Um, companies are making software that integrate with a Twitter API and a Twitter platform. And then there are people who are using Twitter to sort of uh, either create communities around whatever they're either the, the things they're selling or the things that the, the ideas they want to push. So on the first hand, what we're seeing is that there's a lot of opportunities for people who want to build either analytics tools or management tools around Twitter. Like right now, there's about a million applications, I think, registered against the Twitter API. But the real big directions that we're pushing is just how, how how do you discover better content? How do you really get the right things in front of right people? How do you monitor brands, how they're doing? Like is, like is Coca-Cola actually doing well on Twitter or not? So I think there's a, there's a big opportunity for, for that type of analytics work. But there's and, would, and would you offer more of those tools from the Twitter side, or would you focus on you know having the plumbing there, the APIs, so that the third-party vendors can produce those sure. things? Well, I think that I, what Twitter is really good at is trying to deliver products that fit the entire user base or big portions of the user base. So there's always going to be places where people can make uh, very targeted uh, either niche market or, or just verticals that Twitter has not expressed interest in going into applications uh, and, and innovations around that. So we'll always be delivering the plumbing in order to can pull things like that. But I think you can always expect us to be sort of doing things that are the better of all Twitter users mm. in general. Um, There's been some talk, I think, around some analytics tools coming through from Twitter. Sure. I mean, so, so people who, who run promoted campaigns on Twitter right now clearly have some analytics dashboards understand how their campaigns are functioning on Twitter. Mm. Um, there's always a desire to get more and more information into our users' hands so they can just understand, like, how are they doing on Twitter and how can they sort of, like, reach the people they want to reach better. Right. Now, um, that, that, I guess that looking at it from that business perspective, there are um, you know, a lot of businesses today that are using um, the likes of Facebook, uh, Google, AdWords and so on to, to share their message and to connect with the community. Um, when, I guess when we, we look at uh, regions like New Zealand, the I guess the sort of the baselines for small businesses to participate, sort of maybe uh, you know in paid engagement through Twitter, often that baseline is too high. Is that something that's that's going to sort of continue coming down over time, so it's easier to um, uh, you know participate in sort of paid advertising and so on through through Twitter? Yeah, one hundred percent. But I also want to emphasize that there is also always opportunities that doesn't require paid advertising, right? Like it, I I can't speak very authoritatively on the. New New Zealand market, but in the U.S. market, there's on every single billboard, on every single store sign, on every single TV show, you see hashtags, you see Twitter logos, you see at usernames. So all these merchants, all these all these different brands, all these different television shows are reaching an audience without doing any paid advertising. They're already just getting their name out there, and then 
just by simply being awesome, uh, people are spreading the world word through their own ecosystems, through their own communities, and propagating it even further. So, like, I follow the the cafe that's around the corner from my house, and every once in a while, people see me retweeting retweeting the fact that they have awesome scones, right? So, like, you can there's always ways to sort of use your user base as a way to sort of like get your message out there, as long as you're doing the right things for that user base. Cool, cool, excellent. Um, and now here here at Webstock, and you've also uh, been at, what was the other event you, you've been at? KiwiFoo. At KiwiFoo. What have been the things that you have been focusing on in terms of the, the message that you're sharing here in New Zealand? I mean, honestly, I just want to understand how people are using the platform and using our ecosystem. So whether it's, it, whether it's how people communicate around it, like I'm always interested to understand how educators use Twitter to reach out to people, how politicians are using Twitter, what's, what's the perception of Twitter in the media and how the media is also using it but also I just really like seeing like the random stories of the people on the streets and how they're sort of playing with Twitter and just like you go to a conference and you're just like I'm, I'm about to I'm about to reveal some big secret but please don't tweet it the fact that it just sort of showed up in these memes everywhere in the world is always an awe-inspiring thing for me Twitter itself is about 900 people right now, I believe. Um, and about half of that number is engineering in general. And engineering gets split up in different ways, right? There's an operations team, that, a reliability engineering team, whose job is to make sure that machines are there, data centers are functioning, core functionality is in place, things that without which doesn't even make sense to run a software service. Mm -hmm. And what infrastructure does, which is another third, is actually build that real scalable system. My group application services is about 40 people right now and all we do is design and big build these large horizontally scalable systems mm. that sort of can take on the full load of Twitter. Like right now, we're, we're obviously one of the largest sites on the internet in mm. general, mm. and just the amount of request traffic we get every single second of every single day is a little mind-boggling. And I mean, you've obviously got, I mean, every organization has a financial limitation to of what, course. what you can throw at these solutions. I mean, has, and I don't know what's what the um, what you're allowed to say, but I mean, how's how's Twitter operating from a financial perspective now? Obviously, there's been a lot of investors along the way. Sure. Uh, you know, we've just seen you know Facebook go out and sure. launching their IPO. Where's where's Twitter in that picture in terms of what you were able to comment on? I I think we're doing quite well. Yeah. I think it's a short answer to that. Yeah, yeah. Good, good. That's that's what we want to hear. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the world kind of wants a Twitter-like thing in the world and to be existing, right? Facebook has a very strict model on how you can talk, whereas Twitter is that is that medium where you can broadcast and the entire world can listen to you. Mm -hmm. So it's really important that we serve, like, you both continue to do well and also remain as this independent entity that allows us to provide this medium to the world. Mm -hmm. But to answer your question, I think we're doing just fine. <laughs> And I, mean, I guess this probably comes under your the recent um, uh, changes that have that have taken place around having to uh, be compliant with laws in, in, sure. in various countries. Uh, what were the challenges that you had to sort of you know uh, address in order to come up with with the outcomes you've delivered? Where uh, you know in some countries people won't be able to see certain. Uh, topics and, and and things tweeted. Sure. I did, and honestly, this is not necessarily my expertise. On the infrastructure side, it's a it's a straightforward problem. One could say, um, like we strong, like we obviously as a company strongly believe that tweets shouldn't be deleted. Um, so we don't we don't provide deleting mechanisms at, uh, except to users when they actually want to delete their tweets themselves. Like when a takedown doesn't necessarily mean a deletion across the board. But honestly, this is more of a a example of, I think, a, a policy stance of Twitter is actually beneficial to the world in some way. Like, in order for us to provide this medium in certain areas, we might need to be compliant with the laws in certain areas. But that doesn't, like, the laws in certain areas don't apply to the world. So, like, just providing a mechanism that we can have very focused ways to comply with the laws is um, it's a interesting engineering challenge, but definitely not necessarily the hardest one we have to tackle. Um, and you, you mentioned takedowns. Um, there was a situation uh, this, this past weekend where um, a Twitter account appeared under the name of uh, Stephen Sonofsky. Sure. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with, with uh, who he is, uh, but he's the, um, the head of Windows and the Windows 8 team at Microsoft. And um, 
it appeared under that name, the bio, bio said, you know, that it wasn't a, a genuine account mm-hmm. and so on. Um, but Microsoft very quickly came on and sent, you know, sent a message publicly to him saying, you know, look, this isn't following the rules, we're going to have you shut down and so on. And, and pretty soon that account had changed to, uh, you know, fake Sanofsky. Sure. And, and so what's the process involved for that to happen? I mean, I, I guess that can happen in two ways. One, where somebody just goes in and actually changes their details, and other cases where where Twitter has to has to make a change. But I mean, we tend to be really transparent with users. Mm. So if we get a request like that, we will go and form with the other party of just like, there is a complaint around this. Mm. Um, and what most people end up doing is do exactly what you just said. Mm. Um, on, the, on the opposite end of that, Twitter does provide a verification service so that people who are most likely to be either impersonated or things like that, we will go and figure out, is this actually their account? Are they the human behind it? And if they are, then we put a verification badge on it. Mm. So if you see a verified badge, that's usually us as Twitter saying that, yes, we've gone through an entire checklist, manual checklist process to verify this to the user. And if you don't, bets are kind of off. Like, like we, there is no rule per se on Twitter that you have to represent yourself. Like, parody accounts are some of the best accounts on Twitter itself. Well, on Twitter in general, like yeah. the, the BP press oil spill one yeah. was one of the best accounts I saw in the last few years. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, we usually just try to be really transparent with users and then tackle the other side of the problem, which is verify the correct accounts very aggressively when when need be. Well, that was good to get some insights for, uh, from Rafi Kukorian there from uh, from Twitter, and uh, yeah, quite uh, quite a fascinating chat. There was there was a little bit more that um, that that was discussed after the interview, but I, I certainly hope you enjoyed that. Uh, next up, we chat with um, one of Microsoft's more uh, more well known uh, conference speakers, uh, bloggers, and podcasters. Uh, we dive in and uh, and chat with Scott Hanselman. All right, uh, right now with uh, Scott Hanselman here at Webstock. Uh, Scott, how uh, have you been enjoying Webstock? Tell us a little bit about uh, the time here over the last uh, last few days. Well, I think it's it's actually been a little overwhelming because uh, I'm used to the the tech heads. I mean, I've been doing conferences for many many years, but this isn't a Microsoft conference. It's not a Google conference. It's a no. You know, it's a it's a web conference, but it's not a web conference, you know. I mean, I thought it would be a lot of HTML and CSS, but it's not. I mean, like this morning, we've heard about the rise and fall of Slashdot. We're going to hear about Pixar's animation um, pipeline. We've heard about uh, discussion of the social and uh, economic realities behind the LulzSec and Anonymous. I mean, these are things that I don't think you'd see anywhere. I mean, even in really amazing U.S. conferences like CodeMesh, there's been actually very little code and more just kind of a, of a unifying love of the web. And while I totally love the web, I felt a little bit like a fish out of water. What do I have to, what do I have to offer these people? Yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, for me, and this is my first time here as well, uh, very, yeah, very different to any, any other conference I've been to. Um, but you've, you just spoke uh, this morning and you got a you got a really great re- response. Um, what what was the challenge for you over the last few days in terms of you know this environment being so different? How how did uh, how did you prepare to be able to uh, uh, speak? Did you feel that you had to fit into a mold that was set by the others, or uh, were you able just to uh, you know to carry it off and you know mostly how you would how you'd plan to in, in terms of what you covered today? That's a good question. So there's there's about three or four like levels of of uh, going through a talk. I mean, I could just show up and just do a stock talk, but that does a disservice. Those are the kind of things that you do at user groups, not because you're doing a disservice to the user group, but because they haven't seen the talk. Uh, you know, if you have a stock talk or a couple of talks that are just in your quiver, you can pull out and do twenty people here. Though those are fine. Um, in this case. There's a, an expectation of quality. There's an expectation of freshness. There's an expectation of new ideas. So I, I needed to make sure that the talk, while it talks about the themes that I've talked about in the past around information overload, and people who know me will be familiar with a lot of the concepts, I wanted to make sure it was custom for Webstock. I talk about in, in some of my, my, my videos on speaking, like I've got that video that Rob Connery and I sell at speakinghacks.com, about localizing your talk. 
that's actually a two-step process. You localize for the audience, and then you localize for the country. But then you have to think about, well, there's 850 people in the room, but there might be some number of thousands of people watching. So do I make a, a Kiwi talk? Well, there's a lot of people who came from overseas. Maybe out of the 850, there's only 600 Kiwis, right? If, is, is it, it going to be filmed? Is it not going to be filmed? Uh, I localize talks by uh, spending a couple, two or three days talking on and off with locals. I talked about what are the local news stories? What are the interesting things going on? What do you guys care about? What's your parliament talking about? even if it's a technical talk, so I can sprinkle in a little bit of New Zealand, because I think it lets people know that I'm here, like I'm, I am, my feet are on the ground. So, so that's one kind of localization. Then the localization for the people. I started talking, finding out that a lot of these people are front-end designers, they're HTML, CSS, JavaScript. They, uh, most of them actually aren't back-end people. There's not a lot of what I would call proper server programmer types here. So then that caused me to change the talk as well. So there's this multiple layers of localization, for lack of a better word, of this particular talk that I tried, tried to do. And all of that is as a, a kind of respect. So if I do a talk and I put that work into it, it's out of respect for the, the audience, their New Zealandness, their web stockness, their designerness, their love of the web. Great. Now, in terms of what you you spoke about today, you were talking all about um, um, how people should make better use out of their time, and you, you started out with a comment that uh, you know, if at the end of the day you're you're saying that you need a few more minutes, you need to keep working. That's that's not a very good sign. Um, this obviously comes from your your personal experience. Um, what was it that sort of led you into to having this uh, this yeah, focus for your for your topic. Yeah, my my the kind of the base thing about my talk is you should be productive without feeling guilty. You should feel like you can get into the zone without shame. Now, I'm not saying if you're in the zone and it's five o'clock, it's not okay to call your wife or husband and say I need another hour. That's I'm in the zone. I need another hour. Sure. I'm saying that being in the zone, I need another hour, is different from. I'm completely overwhelmed, I've overextended myself, I don't know how to tell my boss no, I need another hour. So I, my message was people need to ignore more, tweet less, read less, consume less, and give themselves the gift of their own time. Right, like you and I are hanging out here, you're giving me the gift of your time, I'm giving you the gift of my time. That's a conscious thing that we've, that we've done, and people, who do that though, but if I said yes to everyone, I would be just doing these kind of things all day long, right? It wouldn't just be sure. Scott and Paul, it'd be us and a line of people and we'd all be hanging out together. I have to be able to say no, and I need to be able to give Scott Hanselman the gift of Scott Hanselman's time. And I do that by saying no, and teaching people to say no is really hard. But I think that the guilt of saying no is much better than the guilt of saying yes and then not being able to accomplish that thing or staying up late to accomplish a thing. Yeah, I like that. That's good. Now, was there a, was there a time in your uh, work life where you sort of realised that um, that you you the way you were using your time wasn't working very well, or you know how did you how did you get to this point? Because you you're quite uh, you know you're quite passionate about the way you talk about how people use their time. Well, I, I wouldn't say I've kind of achieved yet. You know, I mean, it's always one of those things where you never quite get there. It's about the journey. It's not about the finish line. So there are nights when I'm up till 2 a.m. working. That's different from the nights when I'm up to, till 2 a.m. because I'm having fun. So I, people, people who follow me on Twitter know that I'm up till 2 a.m. a lot because that's when I go to sleep. But am I up watching TV and hanging out and having quality time with the family or the wife because she's awake? Or am I trying to catch up with things at work? I do have times and we do have discussions at work about work-life balance. But what I'm trying to promote and what I'm trying to promote in myself is uh, a consciousness that I am choosing to do this and I can choose not to do that. So they'll be, I'll have 35-hour weeks, 30-hour weeks, which in the U.S. is a small number of hours to work in a week. Um, and I'll have 60 or 70-hour weeks, but those 60 or 70-hour weeks shouldn't be accidental. They should be a choice. Like, if your spirit is fed by a 70-hour week in one particular week, that's great. What I want people to, to do is break out of the death march. 
and just say, you know, go to your boss. I can't, I can't do this. And I don't think they're going to say you're a bad person. I don't think that they're going to fire you just because you say, I've got too much on my plate. I need some help. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's good. Now, you know, there's obviously some ways we can use technology to help. What's, how, how important is technology in the mix in terms of how we, uh, you know, how we manage our time? You know, maybe there's some tools that you can, uh, you can comment on that you use, but where do they actually sit in terms of the importance of, of um, the way you operate? So I think there's kind of three basic kinds of tools. There's, there's measuring tools, there's cutting tools, and then there's kind of just standard tools you keep around. So measuring tools are things like rescue time that keeps track of what you're doing and gives you a chart that says you spent this much time today billing clients and you spent this much time in Visual Studio and this much time on the web. And then, you know, then there's you know, cutting tools where you can go into like your calendar and start chopping up your time and saying, I'm going to spend time on this. And I'm starting to schedule email as an appointment. And I'm declining at least half the meetings that I'm, that I'm sent and sending people on my behalf or saying, I'm not going to waste an hour with you. I'll give you a 15-minute meeting, you know, trying to promote smaller meetings. Uh, and then there's the basic tools like Dropbox and Instapaper and these different kinds of tools that are like screwdrivers and hammers and spanners and things that you just need to have in your, in your tool, toolkit. I list a lot of these on my blog. I collect tools. Yeah, so t- um, tell us, your, you, now you, you podcast and you blog a lot. Um, can you tell us about your, uh, your podcast and what sort of things that you cover? So I've got two podcasts. I've got one called Hansel Minutes, which is, uh, we've done 306 episodes. So it's every week. I don't think I've missed a week in 306 weeks. I don't know how long is that, six years? Yeah, it's impressive. It's about 30 minutes long. I, I, a lot of people listen to it in double time. So it may be 15 minutes long, depending on how you listen to it. But I, I say it's the po- uh, podcast guaranteed not to waste your time. I don't do a lot of uh, what's the weather like, how's it going. Just let's get right into it. Uh, and then I, that's, that's an inter- kind of an interview show. Then I do another sh- show that's much more when we feel like it show with um, Rob Connery. Uh, it was Rob's idea, and I joined him, I think, in episode two or three. It's called This Developer's Life. And uh, it's an homage to a very famous American podcast called This American Life. So it's basically stories and music, and it's much more slow in the pacing. It's much more deliberate. Very rarely an interview show and more commonly uh, uh, stories about developers and the things that matter to developers. Great. And what are the, what are the topics that you're, blog, you're generally blogging on uh, now? There seems to be quite a bit of variety. As I, you know, I've followed you on, on Twitter, and uh, uh, you know, when I noticed that you were in New Zealand, you were talking uh, around uh, um, you know, GPS uh, tracking and, and you know, some of the issues around um, uh, how you might manage that with your family. What are some of the other things that you, uh, you talk about? So I, I basically blog about two things. One would be Microsoft stuff that I'm interested in. I get a lot of, I actually don't blog about stuff because Microsoft asked me to. It's a funny kind of a distinction there, but the blog is mine, the website's mine, the dom- domain is mine, the hosting is mine. Uh, so they'll, people at Microsoft will ask me to blog stuff and I just say no. But I mostly blog about what my team's doing. So we work on the web team, we do angle brackets and curly braces and stuff. So I'll blog about ASP.NET and web development because I like the web. But then I'll blog about stuff that happens in my life. So I blog about location services and GPSs, like you just mentioned, with uh, an event that happened down here while I was here. Blog about my kids, square foot gardening for programmers, retro arcades, managing your time, great utilities, hacks that you can do in Windows, just think, things that come into my life that I think are interesting, that I would like to read, then I put them, put them out there. Cool. Now, just to, to to wrap up, I guess one of the one of the things that we uh, we talk about a lot in our podcast is consumer technology and the sort of things that that you personally enjoy using. What are the um, what are the technologies that that you uh, you use and that your family uses from an entertainment perspective and fun perspective and so on? Well, things are a little different in the U.S. Uh, as far as hardware services and bandwidth that we have available to us. Um, and I have a lot of these different things I talk about in the reviews category of my blog. So you go to my blog, upper right corner, go to the categories and go to reviews. Things that I like and we use every day, the Harmony One remote control, greatest universal remote control there is. 
We use Xbox, and on the Xbox we watch uh, DVDs, we watch Zune movies, we watch Netflix movies, we watch Hulu movies. I pay uh, $8 a month for each of Hulu. and Hulu is TV and some movies, and Netflix is mostly movies. Uh, then I've got a PlayStation that I use as a Blu-ray player. It's just a glorified Blu-ray player. I don't do anything on it but Blu-ray. Uh, we have our cable through our provider, but I'm thinking of getting rid of our television and just going straight network. Boys have a couple of iPod touches. Wife and I each have iPads. I've got an HP touchpad and a couple of other different ta tablets. So whatever the new hot tablet is, I'm not really, I don't really care who does it. I just wanted to be able to really watch movies for me. Yeah. Like when I came here, I filled it with movies, you know, and I'm going to try to steal as much. I actually went and bought the Lord of the Rings trilogy, so I'll be watching that on the way back. Okay, cool. cool. Oh, that's great. Well, thank you, Scott. Really appreciate you uh, taking the time out to chat to us. It's absolutely my pleasure, Paul. I appreciate it. Great to hear there from uh, from Scott. I uh, spoke to him uh, just after uh, he had uh, had given his his session in the uh, uh, the main room at Webstock. And uh, next up, we chat with uh, with Derek Handley uh, from the Hyper Factory. Now, uh, of course, uh, um, Derek did very very well with uh, with the Hyper Factory, and they really launched onto the international market across Asia, and uh, and did very very well in, in New York and and across the US with with their company uh, Hyper Factory and uh, Derek was the closing speaker at Webstock so uh, let's jump in and, uh, and listen to that discussion. Uh, right now I'm with uh, Derek Handley and we're just going to be talking a little bit about uh, Derek's business, the Hyper Factory uh, and, and also some of the other things that um, uh, I guess are taking Derek's, Derek's focus now. Um, Derek, can you tell us a little bit about um, what the keys were to your success with with the hyper factory obviously um there's not a lot of sort of small startup businesses in new zealand that managed to launch themselves into the global market um and in a short space of time establish the connections and and all the link ups that are required to actually uh um, make that happen there's a lot of people that try uh, but there's usually some bits and pieces missing from that picture can you highlight what sort of would be the keys from your perspective yeah. Um, so first of all, I think it's important to notice, note that we failed in many countries and we didn't succeed as we wanted to in lots of places that we went, uh, particularly when we went early. So we went early to Asia and uh, in 2005 or, or something like that. And we stayed there for a long time, but it was very, very difficult. So first of all, I guess it's not like we kind of jumped off the plane and stuff happened. Um, we had a fundamental principle, I guess, of sending a principal founder slash someone who's really key to the company into the market. And that's, I think, number one. I think number one factor is most New Zealand companies uh, probably stop there because the founder or someone on the founding team isn't willing to move over and make the commitment and the sacrifice. And there's all sorts of sacrifices on that. Um, that, I think, is key to success. Uh, for us, again, uh, luck or timing or whatever you might call it helped because mobile at the time the hyperfactory was a mobile oriented business was more advanced in asia pacific and new zealand than it was in the u.s so when we arrived in new the u.s in 2006 it's like we'd stepped out from the future so that gave us instant uh, credibility because we were talking about things that they had never heard of or never seen um, and that gave a huge amount of legitimacy to uh, the business. So those two things, I think, uh, were important to start off. And then I think it was really just about sheer determination. And, you know, as I say to lots of people, we made lots and lots of mistakes and lost lots and lots of money on different pieces uh, of things that we tried to do until we finally cracked it in such a way that it's now a business that, you know, I, I have we have left. But um, it will continue as a big business in the US and, and continue to grow so yeah those are some of the things and you know in the in the early days with the business and, and it did grow quite rapidly was it always your your intention you know as you're establishing the business to um, to establish it into an, an export business into a global and an international business yeah so that's one of the things we've always had as a fundamental principle when we started it was this one this needs to be the best in the world and it needs to be international and we didn't think of it as global at the beginning we thought of it as asia pacific we thought that's where we will win and we were wrong and we won in america 
Um, and we actually said we would not go to America because we knew it was so expensive and very difficult. And we thought we knew Asia, and actually it's the reverse that happened. But yes, you're totally right. We, from the very beginning, we said we're going to have this business local until uh, as fast as we can get out of here, we're getting out of here so that we can try and grow because we know the market here is so small. Um, and that was an ethos that we had from the beginning, which made it obvious to go offshore. It wasn't like it was, oh, I think we're ready to export now. Uh, it's not about exporting. It's about building a business that we thought from the ground up was going to be an international business. And what was it that opened those doors? You know, I've been into meetings in Asia and in New York and, and other parts of the world. Uh, and it's often very, very hard to get the meetings with really the key people that are, that are going to um, allow you to enter into that space. What, what did you do? Yeah, I think, uh, I think there's two things that people know about already. One is if you have certain partners and they know certain people, then they can open some doors for you. So we struck a deal with Saatchi and Saatchi early in the, the piece to say, hey, we'll help you do this around the world. Just open up some doors and we'll kind of walk through them and make you look good and we'll look good. So that helped in a way. Um, but it only goes so far. Like, that's it. It doesn't endorse you or anything. It doesn't uh, push you. So if you find some people who do know some people, that's a good start. And, but really it's more about when you have those meetings, what you say in them and what you say in them and what the impact you have and what reputation you build and then go out there and hustle and start kicking down any other doors because the only thing you've got to do, got to go on overseas is your reputation, like everything. It's no different from knocking down doors in Auckland when you're in, if you don't know anyone and you come up here and start trying to build a business, you have to start from scratch. You might know a few friends, etc. So you take those and you go with those, but again, it's back to the basic shoe leather stuff just beating the streets emailing calling and getting out there and when you're there having something to say and saying it intelligently confidently and giving people a good feeling like okay these guys can do something that's going to help me um so 101 type you know business stuff but of course it's way harder because you have no network there no social network no business network it just takes more effort and obviously, you know, you talk, there was a there's a window of time there that um, that made this opportunity relevant. And if you you'd gone back ten years later with the same business, um, the opportunity wouldn't have been there. Do you think there are still similar opportunities for New Zealand businesses today that are as uh, uh, you know as exciting? We look at you know some of the New Zealand businesses that have that have done extremely well, and and some of those have been a matter of being in the right place at the right time. Time, uh, but also all of the things you talk about in terms of work ethic and 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 in terms of the you know the the, the sheer determination required. Yeah, I think uh, when you look back at two thousand and one, which is when we started the hyperfactory. I mean, it was hard, like hard to do anything. You had to get on a plane. You had to get on a plane to do stuff. Now there are there are thousands and thousands more opportunities. There are thousands and thousands of opportunities for building businesses from New Zealand where you actually may not even need to get on a plane. You know, I know lots of people that have built web businesses off the cloud in New Zealand that are doing very well. And so any niche there is out there that someone in the US wants to target if they're going to use the cloud, the New Zealand people can target as well. It's not like, you know, that, that just because we're not there, we can't target them. So I would argue that there's infinitely more opportunities now. Um, and infinitely uh, you know, more potential than there was when we started, which is a great thing. Uh, and there are just so many niches that are opened up that larger com- countries are less interested in. So if you think about the typical venture capital slash startup scene in the US, I mean, it's really focused and my- myopic around massive opportunities, big, many hundreds of millions or billions of dollars companies. That's kind of like how big the company has to be. There has emerged recently a small company kind of syndrome, not syndrome, small company uh, culture, which is like, hey, I'm happy to build a small company, maybe sell it for a few million dollars. But there's so many small niches that New Zealand can just, can just spend all day going after those niches and succeeding in you know huge uh, ways. Great. Oh, that's um, that's exciting. That's great. Now, just you know, you've you've moved on from the hyperfactory. You've sold uh, sold out your shareholding. Um, and you've been talking a bit about purpose. What do you see your purpose as going forward now? Yeah, so I'm working on a few different things. Um, I'm still involved in uh, the hyperfacture in a, in a sense. I'm the chairman uh, and uh, have a role in terms of innovation. But 
I'm also involved in a business that we have in Australia called Snack Media, which was a uh, an orphan of Hyperfactory. Uh, but in terms of my purpose, um, you know, like I've just been talking about at Webstock this evening, uh, I definitely am energized far more by the potential for uh, capitalism and business to do good things and contribute to society's challenges and issues uh, than I am about pure business for business. So I'm not quite sure exactly uh, what those activities are going to end up being. I have a few things that I'll be doing this year that I'm really excited about, um, but they are, you know, a lot of them in the realm of um, how can business be used as a force for good. Excellent. That's great. Oh, well, thank you. We wish you all the best, and uh, we look forward to uh, coming across those activities as they, as they progress. Thank you very much. Excellent. Well, that, that was good to hear from uh, from Derek Handley. Uh, now, in, in closing, we have an interview with the guys from uh, GoVocab. GoVocab were the winners of the BNZ Startup Alley competition, which in, involved about 100 uh, software primarily-based uh, startups in New Zealand who competed for a prize of, of $10,000 and uh, flights uh, to San Francisco and a three-month stint at the Kiwi Landing had, uh, which is uh, premises that are uh, based there in San Francisco for New Zealand startups to uh, to get established into the US market. market. So uh, um, yeah, this, this is quite an interesting little company actually. I think you'll enjoy this one. Okay, right now I'm here with uh, the guys from GoVocab uh, with Tim Fraser and Jeremy Geros. How are you guys doing? Good, thanks. Yeah, very well. Thank you. After the last couple of days. Now, it's, it's been a busy week. Now, Jeremy, did I get your name right? Did I pronounce that right? Close enough. Geros. Okay, okay. All right. Thanks for that. Now, um, go, go Vocab. You guys have just, just come off a big win with the, uh, the, at the BNZ Startup Alley that's um, taken place this week at Webstock. And, I mean, you competed in quite a few other uh, startups from around the country. And it was pretty uh, pretty stiff competition on the night with the final uh, final six. Um, what do you think it was that made you guys sort of stand out uh, from from the other startups? Is it how long you've been around? Is it just your your overall sort of viability as a as a business? Yeah, so you're right. Uh, the original competition was about I think over a hundred applicants, something like that. Uh, you know, there was a top six finalists that made it to BNZ Startup Alley at Webstock. Um, so yeah, all, all six of those really impressed me. Well, you know, the other five really impressed me uh, in a number of ways. Um, you got a couple, Pocketsmith and um, uh, Lumen, who are going into two traditional areas that have already been sort of taken on uh, in, in different ways, uh, time uh, task management and uh, finance management but they're really doing a unique spin on those and that was really impressive and I also like the other three I won't go into detail on them but but they all had something that that you know that they, they all stood up there and they talked about their product in a way that uh, made you want to use it um, and I'm really keen to actually try out a couple of those things over the next few days what I think uh, pull it out you know that we, we managed to sort of get our nose in front um, we we kind of have a really solid idea of where we want to go, uh, you know. So and I think that came through both when we were talking to the judges, you know, just around the competition and in our pitch. Um, one thing I, I really enjoyed was uh, when we got to the end of our pitch and Michael had been answering um, questions from the judges. There was a, a brief moment of pause because none of them had anything to ask us. Yeah, that was a that was a good sign, and I think you're right about uh, about the others. Um, you know, particularly uh, Lumen and Pocketsmith. I think their products did um, you know stood out to me too. But that's a difference with your product. Theirs was something that was sort of uh, you know relevant to a broad audience. Now, um, tell us a little bit about what GoVocab is, because it's more of a uh, a niche product. You've got a very specific uh, audience that you're that you're targeting. Um, yeah, tell us tell us about the product and how you've sort of got to got to this point and where you are in terms of going to market. Right, okay, so uh, it's a, it's sort of a long story and it starts in a lot of different places potentially, but I think the, my favourite way to always start about it is um, to talk about Michael uh, entering a Apple developers uh, competition for a scholarship to fly at San Francisco. Now, he didn't actually win that particular competition, but he made it to the finals. And uh, the competition was to develop an iPhone app and he decided that you know a vocab uh, app for students learning foreign languages might might be something to try out. So, so you know, I got them to the finals and um, 
and he, he obviously thought it was a good idea, but he decided a, a web app uh, was more accessible. You know, a phone app was something only a few people might use, whereas a web app could be for a lot of uh, people. And, and so he decided to go with that. So he worked on that uh, in his spare time uh, while working as a developer, uh, you know, full-time. Uh, and as he, as he became more interested in it, he spent more and more time on it and eventually uh, decided he wanted to go, you know, all out on it. So he uh, and Jeremy who he knew through Otago University, um, they were both students there, uh, and uh, computer science students, uh, decided that you know, they really wanted to take it on and that this was something that they, they had a passion for. So um, they quit their jobs in, was it January or February of last year? January last year. Yeah, so they, they, about a year ago, just about a year ago, they quit their jobs full time and, um, and started building uh, the product, you know, around a, a select few users who they had, you know, uh, agreed to, to give the, the site free for, free for to see uh, how they took to it. So what it, the site is, to explain very briefly, is, uh, well, primarily it's a vocab uh, revision tool for secondary and intermediate s students. Uh, who are learning languages. Um, we offer nine languages at the moment and we continue to expand that. Uh, so yeah, it's primarily a vocab tool. Um, and we chose specifically to go for vocab because uh, you know, it's, it's just a key part of learning a language. You can't really, you, you can know all the rules, you can know the culture, all that, but you have to have a certain bank of words, is the way I see it, um, to use in conversation. So we thought that's a really great place to start. And we'll look to expand um, beyond there, and we, we currently are. Uh, but yeah, we, we thought that was a great place to start. Cool. Well, it looks like it's um, it's quite a bit of fun to use. Jeremy, can you tell us about some of the um, the sort of different modules and so on that are there for uh, for student learnings and and for student learning and and where the teachers sort of fit into that uh, picture? Yeah. So we have a few. We have like a simple quiz one, which is just answer the word comes up in German and you type it in in English, or you can go the other way if you want. And then it gets more, there's more game ones that are a little bit more fun, where it's like bingo with like images and, and there's a towers one where you play against other students in your class or from anywhere. And then yeah, the teachers fit in where they can see the progress of each, how each student's going through the words and then the teacher has like full control over the words that the students are getting. And so that's where like, our product's different from just like learning or like giving this software package to a student. Like, it's about the teachers using this, and then it's just it's only about teaching the vocab, and then like the students still get their one-on-one -on -one time with the teacher in class. Yeah, it looks really cool. Though. I mean, the gaming side of it looks great. Um, looking at the the user interface and the experience, although it's it's web based, it's as um, you know snappy and fast as a full blown um, you know local app might might be on a Mac or a PC. Um, what's the technology behind it? You, you're sort of, um, I guess, one of the the the, the tech geniuses that uh, has 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 come up with all of that. Um, tell us a little bit about how you've put it together. Yeah, so we use. Ruby on Rails to do most of our work and then obviously with JavaScript and or we're actually using CopyScript now and yeah then just normal MySQL and some memcache I guess Cool. And uh, as as this grows, once you've got sort of you know hundreds of thousands of schools um, and and students running this around the world, um, you think you've got the you've got the right platforms to uh, to grow that for the future? I think so. Currently, our server's only at like five percent, so <laughs> we've got we've got some room to grow with our current setup. Excellent, that's cool. Now, um, um, Tim, maybe you can just tell us a little bit about the sort of the business side in terms of um, you know how it works. What you know, why would teachers use this as opposed to what their uh, you know the current sort of tools and so on that they're using today? Is there you know their challenges to getting into this into schools in terms of costs associated? Um, yeah, yeah. So uh, that's that's a good question. Um, so. One one saying that I really like that you hear in um, the startup community, tech community, or whatever, is eat your own dog food, uh, and it basically means you know use your own product and and use your own product because it's good, because you believe in it, and because you know it, it fulfills a need. And I have uh, I don't learn a language, you know, uh, actively at the moment. I'm not trying to learn any one language. Uh, 
at the moment, but, but I have used our site a lot in the past, and I know that especially with what we're developing now, I'm really, really excited to use it. Um, not even because I want to learn a language, just because it's really enjoyable to use and it's a really effective learning tool. I, you know, I, I'm, there are parts of uh, Spanish and French that I understand uh, very well just because you know, uh, you know, I spend a bit of time on our site. So, so anyway, to get back to, um, to why I brought that quote up, I think, I think you need to really be immersed with your audience um, and your customers, your users, whatever you want to call them, um, if you want to deliver them what they really need. So what we do is we immerse ourselves in New Zealand uh, and Australia as well a bit, I think, um, the New Zealand language teachers scene. So there's an uh, organisation called the New Zealand Association of Language Teachers and they hold professional development events called language seminars uh, around New Zealand. And we go to those conferences and we, we talk a lot about our product um, and, you know, and try and sign up teachers and, and get them using it there and, and get them to talk to other teachers about it. And that's really, um, you know, that's pretty much the best way to get it out there apart from, you know, all the tra traditional channels. But it's also really good for getting us feedback you know um, we get constant feedback when people are using the site through customer you know customer support and talking to our customers there but at these conferences is where we really can sort of expand on those ideas and uh, you know and, and throw out some ideas back to them and see how people people respond to that yeah uh, so Tim t tell us a little bit about how this works from um, how, how GoVocab is going to work from a cost perspective for a school uh, and, for, well, and for students um, you know today students have to buy various workbooks and 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 course material um, does does GoVocab sort of replace some of those costs so that it's a very uh, easy thing for a school to put in place uh, or is this going to really be a, an additional expense on top of uh, what students and schools are spending today yeah, well, I see what you mean. I mean, there's a lot of course costs, uh, and, and, you know, there's kind of a classic uh, parent gripe with schools is that the costs mount up beyond just fees or, you know, you, you get a big stationary list. So, yeah, we are looking to replace textbooks. I mean, that's sort of been, uh, you know, the aim of the education, uh, the online education industry for a while is to really put something out there. So, yeah, I mean, we do want to do that. You know, we think, you look at a textbook, it's it's... I mean, it's very inconvenient for students, you know, I'm sure everyone can remember, you know, lugging those around in your, your books and uh, your, your backpack and all that sort of stuff. So, I mean, we know, you know, everyone agrees they're obsolete, but we need something that really is going to replace it. We want to be that, basically. We want to replace it. Um, yeah, so you have your subscription, uh, an annual subscription is $30, and... Uh, we think at the moment, you know, it just does vocab, so maybe you still need one or two of those textbooks. But over time, we want to build enough features that pretty much you could use it by itself. And maybe, okay, you have one or two other things, so you can kind of, different students learn different ways. But there's a lot of free resources out there as well. And, you know, we're going to the paid market, we're creating something that, that you know, you're going to pay a bit more because that way we can develop it to what people really need. But we also encourage people to use free resources out there on the web because actually that's how we learn a lot about language. Languages. Yeah. Excellent. So, um, yeah, thirty dollars a year, and I think you've also got a, a fifteen dollars for a semester type subscription as well for those that just want to, uh, you know, dip their toes in a little bit. Now, that that sounds as it makes quite good sense from a business perspective because you've got, uh, you know, a, a school might have a few, you know a few hundred students going on board. So once you sort of build up a bit of momentum, um, this has the potential to do really well in the New Zealand market. You're looking at other markets overseas as well. Yeah, so uh, part of the prize for the BNZ Startup Alley was two tickets to San Francisco. So two of the three of us are going to be flying out to San Francisco. Maybe we'll have to uh, draw straws for who that is. But yeah, we'll be going over there um, to look at the, the US market and research it, but also maybe even you know look at entering it. Um, but, but we also, I mean, we want to meet people over there in the education industry you know, who can give us some more ideas about what we can do with the product as well. Because it's kind of like... You know, what I love about Trade Me um, is, and, you know, it's great having Sam Morgan as a judge there, someone who's made his success pretty much purely in New Zealand. And I've used both Trade Me and eBay, and I guess you would say, you know, Trade Me is the eBay of New Zealand, and I think it's better than eBay. And there's no reason why something that's coming from New Zealand, and education and anything, shouldn't be as good as the US market. So yeah, we're looking at the US market, but, you know, New Zealand will always be a priority for us because... We're from here, um, and you know we've been given certain opportunities, and, and we want to repay that basically. Yeah. 
Excellent. Well, I mean, it's all, always great for us to be able to uh, hear from New Zealand businesses that are that are taking the world by storm. So we certainly hope that that's uh, that's what we'll see over over the next sort of twelve twelve months or so. And you know, I guess it's um, you know a lot of uh, validation of what you guys have been working on by um, by the win with with the BNZ startup alley. And you know, as you mentioned, judges like Sam Morgan and uh, you know guy there from uh, uh, Harry uh, Ferreira from uh, BNZ. Um, and Matt Howie from uh, Metafilter, um, and of course John John Holt, who runs the Kiwi land, Landing Pad, where you guys will be based when you uh, you turn up in San Francisco. So um, yeah, I think that's great. Well, congratulations on the win, and uh, we'll look forward to hearing your progress, and uh, hope to speak to you again in, in another twelve months or so, and uh, hear how it's all gone. Yeah, thanks very much. We look forward to uh, to talking to you about where we are then. Yeah. Great. Well, that uh, that that wraps up our uh, our coverage of Webstock. Now, there there really was a huge amount of uh, of content uh, that came through during Webstock. Some some amazing speakers from from all sorts of uh, of startups and and major firms and you know uh, founders of, of various companies. A lot of really creative uh, personalities. And what I would suggest, if you're interested really in, in learning a little bit more about Webstock and maybe catching some of those sessions, is to visit the Webstock website, which is webstock.org.nz. And what I understand is over the um, over the coming weeks, we will start seeing um, seeing some of that uh, that content from Webstock being actually made made available uh, publicly. Uh, if you'd like to dive in and listen to that. So uh, thank you, everyone, for listening in to the NZ Tech Podcast. Uh, just a reminder, you can find us online, NZ Tech Podcast on uh, nztechpodcast.com. Uh, Twitter, of course, we're, we're there, uh, NZ Tech Podcast, and facebook.com slash NZ Tech Podcast. So uh, do subscribe um, to us through those those various channels so you can keep up to date uh, with the news, and uh, and you'll, you'll of course, uh, find the NZ Tech Podcast on, on all of the usual uh, online uh, channels for subscribing to podcasts such as iTunes. So thank you very much. We'll catch you on the next episode of the NZ Tech Podcast. 